Greetings, dear, dear listeners, and welcome to another episode of The Working Experience, a very warm, open-arm audio embrace and a squeeze. This episode is brought to you by my company, One Circle Media. One Circle Media is a hybrid digital agency and media content creator. We create and design apps, websites, videos, social media content, and physical products. We are artists, directors, designers, producers, coders, editors, thinkers, makers, and creators who embrace story and creativity from design, web and app development, animation, docs, features, TV shows, digital and social media content to physical products. For our clients, we create content that builds networks and audiences across multiple platforms. Check out our work at OneCircleDigital.com and OneCircleBrand.com. If you work for a network, studio, brand, startup, or corporation and are looking for a partner to create media that will build, engage, and entertain, reach out to me at John at OneCircleMedia.com. I'd love to hear from you. This episode is also brought to you by an app that I created called Still Believe. Still Believe transforms a picture in your home into video proof of your child's favorite magical characters. With the app, parents can catch the magic of the tooth fairy, leaving money under their children's pillow or Santa delivering presents on Christmas Eve in their home. You download the app, take a picture, and we create the magic. We utilize feature film visual effects artists to transform your picture into video. Just tell your kids that you have a special app that can detect and capture the tooth fairy then present them with the video proof in the morning. The look on their faces is priceless. Your Still Believe video is created in minutes, and you can then save it to your phone and share it on social media. The app is available for the iPhone and Android, and it's free to download. Our aim is to bring joy and wonder into the hearts of children around the world. Check it out at stillbelieve.co. Thanks, everyone, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Working Experience. The working experience. Route 93 North is almost at a standstill. It's a rough one out there this morning. Snow and sleet. There is no service on Stand the- clear of the closing doors, please. Uh, yeah, folks, we're going to be a few minutes. We have train traffic ahead of us. We should be moving shortly. John, we need that report ASAP. Where are we on that presentation? And HR wants to see you. Did you return that email yet? We have a team meeting at 10. To stay late, Bob. Teamwork makes the dream work. They're moving in a different and after the meeting, we'll have a breakout session. Who ate my Where are my hot pockets? This microwave is disgusting. Oh, God, what's that? He was wow. moving his Sexual toenails at his desk. I can't take it anymore. I can't take it anymore. I can't. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Working Experience Podcast. My guest today is Professor David T. Welsh. He is a professor of management at the University of Arizona. And we are going to discuss uh, work, his work broadly, and then um, issues more focused on honesty in the workplace. So welcome, David. Thank you for doing this. Thanks for having me. Uh, did you want to start off with just kind of telling us a little bit about your background? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that uh, introduction. And I'm probably right up front better say uh, I'm at Arizona State University now, although my PhD is from the University of Arizona. I grew up down in Tucson, where the University of Arizona is, and so now um, I get some grief from both sides. You know, my friends down in Tucson say I sold out by, you know, working for the rival school, and everybody here says, oh, are, are you a, a wildcat at heart? So, uh, 
So I'm at Arizona State uh, now, just off the road. Um, okay, PG thank you for, I, did, I was not aware of that distinction. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah, well, most people probably don't pay much attention to it, but of course there's a very uh, heated rivalry within Arizona. Uh, okay, good to two know. schools. <laughs> All right. And uh, uh, yeah, so mostly uh, my research is focused on uh, understanding why unethical behavior occurs in organizations. How do we reduce unethical behavior from happening? Um, so, you know, there's philosophers out there who study ethics in terms of like what should people do? These sort of normative questions. Uh, I'm a bit different. I'm in the field of what's called behavioral ethics, where rather than looking at what people should do, we look at what do people actually do at work and what are the factors that might actually make them behave a little bit better or a little bit worse. And so broadly, that's what I'm interested in. And uh, I teach as well uh, ethics courses. Right now I'm teaching in the MBA program here at ASU, and that's a lot of fun as well. So what, uh, what kind of drew you to that field? Yeah, so um, before getting my PhD and becoming an academic, uh, my undergrad was business management, but then I went and got a law degree. And for a while, uh, I thought that I would be an attorney. And there was a lot that I enjoyed about law school. I really enjoyed thinking about these sort of difficult ethical questions and what the law should be and how do we handle it when people have done bad things. And so all that interested me uh, a great deal. But then in terms of actually becoming a lawyer, uh, it, I, I realized that was not going to be uh, the ideal uh, career fit for me. So uh, even as a law student, um, later in law school, I went back to the business school. I took some PhD courses um, in management and got involved in some of the, the research that was going on uh, with ethics and organizations. And it was actually a really exciting time to get involved in this research before uh, Enron and some of those uh, famous scandals that we remember in the early 2000s. You know, business schools didn't even really care that much about ethics. It really wasn't on people's radar as much. And then all these scandals happened, uh, Enron and all the financial fraud there and everything exploded. Um, and business schools realized, you know, hey, we got to study this a little bit more. We need to teach this. This needs to become uh, an important thing in terms of what we do when we think about business. And so I was uh, getting into that right as the field was growing and uh, people were really interested in understanding why does bad stuff happen at work? What do we do about it? What are the factors that um, sort of turn the dial for better or worse? Um, and so it was a really exciting time to get involved in some of that research. And uh, once I got involved, I realized it was a great fit, went and got my PhD after that. And I've been uh, researching and teaching uh, ethics ever since. So, uh it kind of sounds like, and it, it's funny you mentioned law school because my father was a lawyer, and um, it, it, I guess there's a, a category of law, what's legal, what's illegal. There's a category of ethical, and there's a category of moral. And I was, I was kind of, I mean, the legal and illegal to me, and I don't know if you would agree with this, they don't have a whole lot to do with, I mean, they have something to do with what's right and wrong, but I don't know. It, it sort of seems like the legal system can often be used to justify things that are not quite uh, ethical, you would say, or moral. Um, so I was wondering, like, where, what you think about uh, ethics and morality? Are they close cousins? Do they relate to each other? Or how would you see that? 
Yeah, so that's an interesting distinction between what's legal and what's ethical. Certainly, there's a lot of overlap there. You know, uh, a lot of the major crimes would also certainly be immoral things to do. But then you have all these little cases, right? You know, there might be unethical things that you would do in your personal life. But like, do you want a law specifically prohibiting that? Or does the law go far enough? Or, you know, in some countries, the laws are different than in other countries. But does that actually change what is ethical to do? Um, so when I think about ethics, I'm thinking like of a broader question. It's not just um, compliance with a, a legal standard, um, but I think ethics goes beyond that in some sense. Uh, I think in my field, oftentimes uh, the terms uh, mor morality and ethics can be used interchangeably. But I think sometimes people make a distinction, like you said, between legal ethics and you know what's actually ethical outside of the law. Um, or maybe when they think of morality, they think of like personal morality, your personal moral standards as opposed to ethics is like everything else, the environment, the culture, other factors, or sometimes with morality, you might think of like um, more sort of dispositional or personal characteristics um, as opposed to uh, with ethics. You might be thinking, you know, beyond just these normative, like what should I do? You can be thinking like what do people actually do? Like what actually uh, are these instances of ethical and unethical behavior uh, at work in the workplace as well? So so I think ethics uh, as a whole is a little bit broader maybe than some of these other uh, terms or frameworks. Do you find uh, that ethics are, is that like a universal concept? I mean, would ethics, something that's ethical in the United States be ethical in, in England or India or Japan, or is that a, a universal concept that people in, in the workplace in those areas, um, let me rephrase that, that like somebody in an office in Tokyo or an office in Boston or New York or London, is that kind of a universal concept or is there disagreement about what's ethical and not? Yeah, and this is a great question, right? Because you have all these multinational companies now, you, they might have um, divisions all over the world. And so, for example, in the United States, using like child labor, or maybe like sweatshop type practices, we say uh, that's definitely unethical. It's probably illegal in many places. But there are some countries around the world where uh, that would not be illegal. And maybe even, um, you know, the, the ethicality within a certain community, people might be more uh, open or there might be more uh, disagreement in terms of, uh, of what's ethical in one uh, country or one environment as compared to another. Uh, so I think the philosophers really get at this question of like, you know, is there one sort of ideal moral standard out there that we should universalize or is ethics more socially constructed? And I think for many of us within um, the realm of behavioral ethics, we're kind of looking at stuff in the middle of the bullseye where it's like, this is definitely lying, cheating and stealing. We can all kind of agree across the board that this is wrong. Uh, to the extent that we can agree that something is wrong, what do we do about it? How do we understand it? Um, I think there are these corner cases, right, that are very tricky where people can have legitimate disagreements across different nationalities or different backgrounds or even different values. Um, and that's interesting to think about. I've done a little bit in that space. Uh, but oftentimes within an organization, it's like we know what the big problems are. But what we don't know is how to fix these problems or why they're happening. That kind of puts me in mind of like, well, when you said child labor, I mean, for 
you know, uh, a number of decades in the United States, child labor was legal. I mean, there weren't any laws surrounding it particularly. I th- I, I don't want to try to remember dates and things, but I, I would say it was maybe past the 1930s, 1940s, that child labor started to be seen as, you know, something that was not good for society. Um, so are there any, like, large movements you could point to in business where you would say like the ethics on that have changed like either that used to be considered wrong and now it really isn't or the other way around or I know it's kind of a broad question but I was sort of interested in as opposed to looking to other countries looking at time and how maybe yeah. ethics have either evolved or devolved if you will. That's a great question. And I think many people have this sort of intuition, oh, like things have gotten worse. People used to be more ethical than they are today. Or, you know, it can be a little bit of the grass is greener. You know, back in the day, we didn't have these issues. Um, in my own view, I think it's mixed when we think about whether people are more versus less ethical today as opposed to in earlier times. I don't think there's like a clear yes or no answer to that question, but it probably depends more specifically on the topic or the area that we're looking at. Uh, For example, you mentioned child labor, unethical thing. We don't deal with that anymore. uh, Clearly, there's been ethical progress made on that or on uh, civil rights or uh, maybe even more recently, like issues that uh, women often deal with in the workplace. And we have the Me Too movement. Um, You know, we're still in the aftermath of that. We're still seeing what the outcomes are. Uh, But even a movement like Me Too, uh, it seems like there are certain things Uh, today that people would consider unethical in the workplace that are probably happening less in the workplace that maybe a decade ago uh, were more prevalent and got overlooked or uh, really people didn't face punishments for for certain behaviors. So I think in those areas, there really has been progress and probably uh, some others as well. You know, it used to be that, you know, as a business, you could kind of pick and choose what you would do in terms of, you know, dumping your, your waste in the river like that didn't used to be like something that was against the law, it, you'd be like going sort of above and beyond if you decided to be a responsible organization. And now we see companies have pressure not only to just follow the basic minimum when it comes to regulations, but to actually engage in corporate social responsibility, maybe even to weigh in on certain social issues. So there's more of an expectation there, uh, certainly. Um, so that's the positive side. Uh, the flip side, right, is that as humans, we still have the same Uh, underlying biological hardware today that we've always had that didn't change so we're not inherently more ethical today Uh, it's only really if these sort of broader cultural forces or maybe specific forces within say our workplace or our environment uh, nudge us in that direction and sometimes we have forces that are nudging the other direction right like uh, an increasingly competitive workplace more focus on profits and numbers and metrics and performance goals and all that, you know, sometimes that pushes people away from, you know, ethical choices. It's just not even front of mind or the trade-offs are are, are favoring these other things. And then, of course, we also have these new ethical challenges today as well. So we have all these new technologies, social media, globalization, climate change, uh, political polarization, you know, all these different things. Uh, And so, as these things change, there's new opportunities to misuse technologies or act unethically in new ways. So 
technology is exciting, these new developments can be exciting in certain ways, but it, it always means there's there's more ethical issues to confront. It's not like we can solve all these issues that we're facing and say, okay, we're done, there's no new issues, because we kind of solve one thing and then something else emerges as a larger issue than it was in the past. So when you, uh... When you're teaching your ethics courses, do you like pose scenarios to your students, give them like some of the philosophical underpinnings and sort of like say, okay, what should somebody do in this situation or what's ethical or unethical or is, is that is that would that be kind of a lesson you would try to do with them? We definitely do some cases and actually looking at how managers facing tough dilemmas would behave. But I think that the approach, you know, I think if you just to assume like, oh, like what does a bit uh, business ethics course consist of? You might assume like, oh, like, you know, the professor is trying to sort of change the deeply held values of the students and make them more ethical as individuals. And, um, you know, maybe gets up there and, you know, does some sermonizing and preaches a little bit about, you know, the importance of being good and all that. Um, and while I think that a little bit of that can be valuable. I think my approach is, you know, I'm, I'm not assuming going in that um, I'm going to change the the fundamental values of my students in a few weeks necessarily. That's not necessarily um, the goal that I'm going in thinking, okay, I'm going to take this unethical person and uh, totally transform them in a few weeks and they'll be an entirely different person when they're finished with the course. Um, but what I do think my goal is and my focus is if we think more broadly about this idea of like ethical design and how do you design a workplace that brings out the best in people, that um, highlights some of the potential pitfalls, that uh, talks about the ways that you can design work so that you can uh, avoid or effectively handle some of these ethical challenges, that's a little bit different than changing somebody's sort of fundamental moral values, but it also is very, effective, maybe more effective in terms of actually making a difference rather than changing uh, the individual. How do you change the work environment so that when the individual is in that situation, when they're confronting ethical issues at work, it brings out the best in them? So I'd say that's my focus as a professor. I think my students come in, most of them think, you know, hey, I'm a good person. Um, I know a lot about ethics. I know why other students in this program might need a business ethics course. I don't need that course. I'm good. This is just like sort of a required thing. And so I actually like that they come in with that expectation because I want to challenge that a little bit. Uh, I don't want it to be this sort of boring, you know, here's why you need to be a good person, X, Y, and Z, but to really challenge them because once they, once we start talking about these ethical issues, uh, these MBA students, they see this all the time. You know, I bring up different cases and different topics and different things, and they all say, you know, oh, like, you know, I, I had a career experience where I had to deal with this, or, you know, we're going through something like this right now, or, you know, I had a coworker who, you know, had, had a decision to make in this area. Um, and so I think once we actually get into the details, all of a sudden it becomes more real to them. And this idea of how do you design the work environment in the right way? that becomes something that becomes more interesting to them as they think as a manager, you know, what am I going to actually do with this content to improve my workplace? Yeah. I mean, it would seem, I guess there are scenarios or instances where somebody may just not know what is ethical or not in that particular instance. I mean, I just, I think of something like, you know, a, a medical student having to be 
told, like you never reveal anything about, you know, a, a patient's uh, diagnosis or whatever, unless this set of circumstances is there. And then you could, you know, people may just legitimately not know what would be the ethical thing to do, as opposed to the right or the wrong thing, which would be stealing money from a patient or something like that. Um, I don't know. I just sort of, it, it, it was an interesting concept to me about like teaching ethics. Cause it, I guess it could be interpreted one way as you're, you're teaching people right from wrong. And you would say like, well, okay, you're, you're an MBA student. You should probably know that by now, but it, from what you're saying, it sounds like you're saying like, okay, but consider this scenario or consider how you would construct this business to allow people to be ethical. It's, is sort of how I interpreted what you were saying. Exactly. And I think that the best cases and the best discussions that we have um, in the course deal with these sort of gray area issues where you can't just come in and say, oh, like, here's the immediate ethical solution. So obviously this is what the person should do. Or, you know, here's what the law says about this. So the case is closed. Uh, I think that uh, sometimes for undergraduates who have not been in the, the work world for a long time, it can be tempting to think that organizations work like that and everything kind of comes with red flags, you know, pre-marked and it's kind of just deciding like, oh, is this an ethical issue? And if it is like, you know, it's pretty clear how I'm going to solve it. Um, but the MBAs with uh, a little bit more professional experience, I think they really appreciate that sort of gray area and the um, sort of challenges around ethical decision making and why sometimes uh, there are these trade-offs that can be hard to make or why there are multiple courses of action that could be ethical or unethical um, and sort of working through those together where there's just not an immediate answer that everybody can clearly converge on. That's actually one of the things that I enjoy about teaching this course. I think I would be uh, less engaged if I was teaching a subject where, you know, there was just one clear right answer that we arrived at and I was just taking the students through to this answer um, and then we all reached the answer and, you know, the problem is solved. Uh, but in ethics, I think the, the discussion and the complexity around the problems uh, and the different perspectives that people bring, that's what makes it interesting. You know, I can uh, teach a case for a few years and, uh, you know, even after a few years, all of a sudden you're hearing some different things and different perspectives or somebody shares an experience of something related to the case that you think, oh, wow, I never thought of it from that angle before. And that can be really interesting. Yeah. And it also seems like uh, unethical behavior tends to be a slow creep. Like it's not the big glaring issue. It's, it's that series of small uh, morally questionable, uh, the question of honesty would creep in, but you could probably justify it. And it, it seems to, uh, frequently build that way rather than, Hey, I'm going to steal. I mean, I, I assume it does happen where someone just decides to embezzle $5 million, but it seems sort of like more the norm is that those small steps people take. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, actually, because um, one of my uh, research projects that I did a number of years ago was looking at this slippery slope of unethical behavior, which we've all heard of the slippery slope, right? But uh, ethics scholars had actually never investigated whether that was a real phenomenon. It's like people had observed it, people had seen it happen in the business world, but nobody actually really tested and, and systematically examined, you know, hey, is this, is this a real thing and, and how does it happen? And so we actually 
did that in this study where we basically created um, these situations, these basically experimental tasks, and we used a variety of different tasks and methods where it was basically a gradual progression of unethical behavior in one condition and in the other condition, a very abrupt sudden shift because we wanted to see is this slippery slope real and what sort of effects does it actually have on people's behavior? And so when we actually looked at it, probably no surprise here, there was a slippery slope. It more than doubled cheating and uh, it occurred because people, when they go down this slippery slope, they become, well, the term is morally disengaged, but what that means is they become more likely to rationalize and justify questionable conduct because it's incremental and because you're sort of working your way, you know, step by step down the slope, it becomes very easy to justify that past thing that you've done that's pretty similar. And then that next thing that's a little bit worse, but also similar as well. So that justification just leads you right down that slippery slope potentially. Yeah, you know, and I was, um, it kind of leads me to um, wondering about, you know, what role do employers play in this i mean i my the, the guy i do this uh podcast with he used to work for morgan stanley uh this was like 20 something years ago and he, he worked there for about a year or so and i mean basically you're there to make money like you make money for the company you're golden you don't make money for the company you're not uh i dare say there weren't a lot of discussions of ethics um on the trading desk so <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and that in, in one sense is very clear cut. It's like here, nobody's worried about what I do on my off time. Doesn't really matter. Um, but I, I remember like a story I would hear about my grandfather who was a salesman. He worked for Coca-Cola for some time and whatnot. And it was sort of like, okay, here's your sales. Here's your sales territory. Here's your quota. Don't do A, B, and C because that's dishonest. But if you don't do A, B, and C, you're never going to make your quota. And it was like a lot of winking about like, you know, you're not supposed to take kickbacks. And I'm not saying my grandfather did any of this, but it, you know, I was, when you're talking about how businesses are set up and the structure and uh, how ethics plays into that, like I think of performance reviews and quotas and things like that. And I was just kind of wondering if you could speak to that. Yeah, that's one of my favorite uh, areas to do research on. I really enjoy this sort of, um, understanding when organizations, maybe even with good intentions, are doing this sort of rewarding A while hoping for B. They're telling your grandpa, you know, hey, like go out and 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 sell these products and we want you to be ethical. But what they're really rewarding is, did you sell the products, not right. did you sell the products in an ethical way? And so I think understanding that because, you know, maybe even sometimes the corporations, they don't have this, this evil intention. They, they want to make money. They want to sell products. But the result of this, um, what you're describing here, this is like a classic like Wells Fargo situation if we think about the scandal that just unfolded there. Um, so to back up for, for a second here, I mean, what I think we begin with, many of us, is this sort of mistaken assumption about people that people are either fundamentally good or they're fundamentally bad and that your job as an organization is to basically find these bad apples and to root them out. Um, so the organization is really not influencing the ethics of the employees so much as it's deciding, you know, who are the good apples and who are the bad apples. Um, and what a lot of research has shown 
is that, well, there are some bad apples out there. We know that. But we actually really underappreciate this role of context, the role that the organization and the environment actually have in terms of shaping people's ethical decisions. So like take your grandpa's uh, example here, where it was basically like, hey, here's your goal. You got to sell this many things. And, you know, you're not supposed to do these questionable things to sell those. But if you don't do those things, you're going to be fired or, you know, you're just not going to meet this goal and you're going to fail and all that. Um, it's just this classic setup situation where you're focused on the outcome and the goal itself is having this sort of unintentional negative consequence. And so we see this potentially in a variety of organizations when it comes to these sorts of goals and incentives and metrics. So with Wells Fargo, for example, what the CEO did is he set these very high cross-selling goals for bank employees. Basically, if you have a Wells Fargo account for one sort of thing, like a checking account, they wanted to make you so you had like eight other accounts at Wells Fargo for all sorts of other things. And so they put all this pressure on their employees to achieve these goals. They didn't tell them, oh, be unethical, do all these questionable things. But they did say, hey, this is a really important goal. If you want to be promoted, if you want all these other things, you know, you better achieve these goals. And so under this pressure, all these employees resorted to these questionable tactics. Uh, over a million unauthorized accounts were opened. It was a major corporate scandal. And uh, when this all came out, of course, the CEO, uh, John Stump, he first tried to blame the employees. He said, oh, this is just bad apples. But what this research coming out of behavioral ethics shows and what we saw when we actually sort of peeled back the layers here is a lot of this actually had to do with the underlying incentives and the reward systems that were designed by Wells Fargo. And if Wells Fargo had designed things differently, employees would have acted very differently within that system. Yeah, like they had, I mean, basically, I guess, given the the not well, I guess more strongly than a nod and a wink, it was like you you'd better set up fake accounts or you're going to lose your job. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, now, I mean, I suppose you could say the employee could say, "Hey, that's unethical. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to quit," and take some you know moral stand on that. But I suppose if you have a mortgage and you have kids, that question becomes a lot more difficult. Yeah, and so when we think about this sort of spectrum of employees, we're going to have a few employees that are like the saints, right, that you give them this sort of like Wells Fargo situation, and they're going to say, well, I'd rather resign, or I'm just not going to hit my goals, or, you know, you can fire me, or whatever. And we will see some people like that, and it's great that there are some sort of ethical individuals who are going to always take the high road. And then we're going to see some on the, the, the flip side of the continuum, right, where even if these were sort of very reasonable goals and there wasn't all this pressure and the bad stuff. There'd be some people who would just sort of do whatever questionable thing they wanted to do to get the goal. So there really would be some bad apples, even, even you know, in the best of, of times. But what we see in the middle, right, is the sort of average employee who they want to be a good employee generally, but they also want to keep their job and promotion and they have bills to pay and all these other things. And they look around and they see other employees doing these questionable things to sell products. And these employees are getting ahead in the company. And so what you see is a lot of employees here in the middle, they're looking up, they're looking around, they're seeing what's going on. And they're thinking, you know, well, maybe I should do that too. Or maybe that's what I have to do as well. Um, so when we think about performance goals here, 
the solution isn't, oh, you can't have goals or you have to get rid of your metrics so you can't use incentives. Those things work. What you just have to do is you have to be a little bit more thoughtful, a little more strategic about how you do this. You can't set these super high goals and then ramp up the pressure so much where that the only way the employee can hit the goal is by doing these questionable things, kind of like you were sharing with your grandfather. If the only way that he can meet his sales goals is by doing the things that his employee or his employer is telling him not to do, you put him in the wrong situation. That's a bad situation to be in. If you define performance too narrowly, if you just say, hey, it's a specific outcome, it's this narrow, how many products did you cross sell? And that's what we care about in, in terms of performance. That's a problem. And if you just emphasize the outcome, if you just say, hey, we just want you to sell these products. We don't care how you sell them. We're not going to be looking over your shoulder. There's no oversight. It's just go give us the, the outcome and we don't care about the process or we don't care about the sort of personal development or other aspects of this. We just want an end result that also puts people in the wrong frame of mind and brings some of this out. So you can use incentives, you can use rewards, you can use goals, but you can use them in a very effective way or you can use them in a way where you're going to get some of these unintended consequences. Well, I guess what people like me have a real bone to pick is like, I mean, it's one thing to say, look, we need you to have this many accounts, sell this many products, whatever. We don't care how you do it. But then when it turns bad, Wells Fargo just hangs these people out to dry and yeah. puts blame on them not taking any responsibility for what they created. Yeah, and it's unfortunate that we see that example. I mean, it ultimately did come around that CEO John Stump was fired, and I think there was a lot of investigative journalism and some of the scholarship sort of supporting some of that, suggesting, hey, wait a minute, these are not just bad apples. There's something more going on here. Uh, but the funny thing about Wells Fargo is this was not the first time where we'd realized that goals like this can be a problem. It's like when we had the Veterans Affairs scandal a number of years ago where there was a secret wait list that was created for veterans to make it look like they were seeing veterans in only 14 days, but really there was the secret list where veterans were waiting and even dying while they were waiting for care. That was just a couple years before, a couple years before that, teachers were cheating uh, in the Atlanta public school system um, to basically make it look like their students were meeting the test scores because that was helpful to the teachers. And then a few years before that, we had Sears Automotive giving uh, sales goals to their mechanics in terms of, you know, this is what we want you to charge per hour and this is how many repairs we want you to do. And so the mechanics were, you know, fixing all this unnecessary stuff on the cars. And then even before that, this was one of my favorites, there was a, a company that made hard drives called Miniscribe and at one point, um, the company, to meet their quarterly sales goals, some of their employees actually shipped out uh, physical bricks like that you would build a house with, as opposed to hard drives uh, to these customers to make it look as if they'd actually met their sales goals. And of course, that turned out to be very bad for the company. It's no longer in business. Uh, but we see this long pattern uh, of misaligned goals and incentives. And, you know, because metrics and numbers are important to organizations, I suspect Wells Fargo won't be the last. I think we'll probably see some examples in the years to come. I was speaking to uh, Jesse Isinger. He wrote a book called The Chicken Shit Club, which is about, it was, it was about like Enron being kind of the last case that the Department of Justice really went after. And uh, now they have these things called deferred prosecutions where 
you know, the company pays a fine and basically promises not to do it again. And that's kind of it because these cases are so expensive. They're so time consuming and so forth. And, you know, he was kind of talking about the other end saying there are no consequences. The consequences have gotten to be a fine that they factor into their, you know, cost of doing business. And that's about it. So there wasn't much of an incentive to kind of curb what was going on at, at like WorldCom and, you know, companies like that. So kind of coming at it from a different end than, than you are, but I kind of put them together. It made me think of that because it's like, all right, well, where's the consequence here? You know, like what's, what's forcing anybody to act ethically, you know? It's a great point, for sure. I mean, and when you think about a big organization where an ethical scandal occurs, you know, what happens in that sort of context? Everybody blames everybody else, right? The CEO blames the employees who were on the ground who actually did that. The employees might blame their manager above them, who was the person who told them what to do. The managers then blame the executives above them. And then, you know, maybe others are even blaming, oh, like this was just the business environment we're in, you know, so that can make it hard, right? You have this big company, maybe thousands of employees, and it's like, who goes to jail and who is ultimately responsible? And I think some of these uh, corporations have been very successful at sort of deflecting and saying, you know, you can't put the CEO in jail or whoever, you know, it wasn't just this person's fault. Uh, but the problem is that the the ref- uh, responsibility gets diffused so much that ultimately nobody is really held accountable. And then, you know, the lesson is, well, we can just do it again and pay the fine if we get caught. It kind of seems like that's why corporations were designed to diffuse responsibility, to not <laughs> like there's no there's no one person who's the boss who made these decisions and you're like, okay, this is your fault. You did the, you know, it's, it's, as you said, it's everybody pointing fingers at each other. And yeah, absolutely. I mean, from a legal liability standpoint, that's the benefit of the corporation, right? Is you can form your company, you can do this thing. And if the company goes bankrupt, uh, because it was a company, you're not personally on the hook for those finances necessarily. They're probably not going to take away your house or your car or something like that. But within the moral domain, it can be the same sort of thing where the diffusion of responsibility here has this sort of negative consequence of nobody ultimately is on the hook for what the company as a whole does. And that's a problem. Do you think like the individual honestly feels that way? Like, are they like, hey, look, this was one of my questions where people would use the phrase, hey, it's just business. And I think you alluded to this before, like, I have my personal ethics and my family life and maybe my deeply held religious beliefs, but there seem to be some people who can really compartmentalize and do things that are blatantly dishonest, but it's business. That's different from being immoral. And I was just kind of wondering like what justifications people use for that, or or do you find that, that people are like, hey, I just work for the company and this is what the company wants me to do. Doesn't make me a bad person, it's my job. Yeah, so let me tell you like two different strategies that people use. I've done some papers on both of these and they're both interesting in that they have, they're slightly different in their approach here. Um, so one of these is what we would call moral decoupling. So think about somebody like Tiger Woods, right? Uh, a great golfer, 
uh, did some things in his personal life that weren't so great. Um, but you had a lot of Tiger Woods fans who remained Tiger Woods fans. And if you talk to him, they say, you know what, he's a great golfer. That's why I like him. He's a high performer. He's a star. Um, I don't really care about what he does in his personal life. Uh, we've seen this, of course, with many other like politicians, executives, uh, celebrities. Um, they have scandals in their personal lives. But oftentimes people say, ah, they're still really good at what they do. I'm, I'm still a big fan in that sense. So when people morally decouple, they get to both sort of have the benefit of saying, you know, I don't condone this person's behavior. But then on the other hand, they get to still say, you know, I'm still a fan of this person. They're still a high performer. I still really like them. Um, so that's one way that people can get around that is they just say like, look, these are two decoupled things. And what I care about is performance. I don't care if Tiger Woods, you know, has this extramarital affair. I just want to watch him play golf. So that's one strategy. Um, the other strategy that people use a lot is called moral disengagement. We mentioned this a little bit earlier. And basically, this is how people rationalize and justify questionable behavior. You know, oh, this is not a big deal. Oh, everybody's doing it. Um, you know, oh, like this is not lying. It's strategic misrepresentation. I use the phrase, it's just business earlier. That would be like some classic moral disengagement language. Um, and when you're engaging in moral disengagement, this is like motivated moral reasoning. You're kind of acting like uh, a hired gun attorney in your own mind here, where you're thinking like, given that I want to do this thing or that I've done this thing already, what sort of reasons or excuses can I come up with uh, where this would be all right? So you're kind of working backward and saying like, how do I get away with this and still feel at the end of the day, like I'm not that bad a person or, you know, I feel okay about myself or I can live with this. Um, and so people will uh, engage in these different forms of moral disengagement, basically to justify questionable behavior while at the same time feeling like, you know, I'm still okay. I'm still a decent person. Um, so I would say moral disengagement and moral decoupling, these are definitely two strategies that come up quite a bit within uh, ethical issues at work. So it sort of sounds like, you could like someone knows they're going to do something dishonest and they're like, hey, look, it's business. Maybe I'm misleading the customers or maybe I took money from an account I shouldn't have, but I'm going to pay it back and they don't pay it back or, you know, they it, but it's business. I'm just creating business. And, you know, that's how I justify it. I guess. Exactly. Exactly. And so that that would be a, a specific moral disengagement strategy, even there called uh, called euphemistic labeling, where you put this sort of label on it. Oh, it's business. And that suggests rather than saying, oh, that's unethical behavior. You say, oh, no, it's this other thing, you know. Oh, it's not uh, lying. It's just bluffing in a negotiation or, oh, you know, I wasn't fudging the numbers. I was just being strategic. Yeah. Uh, and so there are lots of these different types of strategies that people can use where it basically makes whatever they're, they've done not seem so bad by comparison. I think creative accounting is one of the funniest euphemisms I've yeah. heard. Like what, yes. what's creative about accounting? Like it either is or it, or it isn't. Uh, so just a, a few big questions to wrap up. Do you think sure. people are becoming more honest or less honest in the workplace? Yeah, uh, so not an not an easy answer. I would say I would say topic topic by topic. I would say around certain issues, um, 
people are becoming more ethical. And I would I would say like I would say like once again like the the Me Too civil rights LGBTQ um, like a lot of those issues where um, society has sort of changed in recent years and the work world has come along. Uh, corporate social responsibility maybe would be another example of that. I'd say we've gotten better. Uh, when it comes to other things like uh, these ethical scandals related to goals and incentives and, you know, kind of creating a, a, a workplace uh, driven by performance and uh, some of these other things, uh, we probably haven't made very much progress. And maybe in some ways uh, we actually are, are a bit worse or there's more of this pressure uh, than there used to be. Um, so probably not a clear answer across the board. There's a lot of different ethical issues. We've made progress on some. Um, but there are new issues that are emerging as well that, you know, maybe 10 or 20 years ago weren't even on our radar. Okay. Um, what do you find most valuable about what you teach your students? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I would like to think that um, when my students take my course, that at the end of it, they can think of themselves as a manager within their organization who has the ability to sort of turn the dials to influence the behavior of others in positive ways. So when they think about as a manager, like what sort of organization am I going to design? What am I going to reward? Uh, how am I going to sort of interact with my employees or set the example? What sort of goals am I going to use? Uh, what can I do to sort of nudge them in the right direction? That they've actually given some, some strategic thought to this. Um, so that they're in a position as a manager to bring out the ethical best in their employees. And I think that that's something that once you go through a lot of these principles of ethical design with, with uh, managers, they get it and they want to do it. But sometimes it's not always as intuitive. They come in thinking, I have ethical employees and I have unethical employees and I got to figure out how to deal with them. And instead, I want to put the ball in their court. What are you going to do to design this organization to nudge your employees to be a better version of themselves? Okay, yeah. So instead of you saying, hey, this is what's ethical and what's not, you you make the design so people can act ethically. I mean, is that a summation that works <laughs> somehow? Uh, it, it Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, okay. You you make the you make the organization or the environment designed in such a way that doing the right thing is the direction that people are sort of nudged in. You don't have to go upstream. You don't have to swim against the current, go against the grain, you know, do all these other things uh, to try to do the right thing. It's like everything is designed with the wind at your back so that you're in this environment where it really brings out your own ethical values as an employee. Okay. Uh, one of your topics I looked at, which is near and dear to our heart, is hunger in the workplace. <laughs> kind of why this whole podcast got started. So I've had this debate with people about what is communally available in the break room, refrigerator, or whatever, um, and what is off limits. So I have a few items here. Uh, a large container of coffee creamer, communal, mm. not communal. Yeah, I, I, I say that communal. sounds pretty. That sounds pretty communal to me. I mean, somebody could put their name on it, but that almost seems like 
it'd be it'd be almost a little bit rude to to assume that that was just for you and not for anybody else. I'm gonna go with communal. Okay, putting a name on it that sounds rather aggressive. To it me, does, it quite does. honestly. Uh, butter, four sticks of butter in there. It's tricky. They could be wrapped. They could be unwrapped. Uh, is that is that communal? You know, four sticks of butter sounds like a lot to me. It sounds like with that much butter, you ought to be sharing that butter. Now, if you just bring like one of those little like fun size packets from the restaurant and you just put that in there with your lunch, people should not be messing with your fun size packet. But right. four sticks, you got a little bit to spare. I think so. I, now, I had a coworker who would disagree with you who wrote yeah. a very, <laughs> very aggressive note yes, about <laughs> people meddling with her butter. Uh, salad dressing. Oh, salad dressing is a little bit tougher here, but, uh, you know, once again, it seems like if you're in an environment where there's this sort of norm of like, hey, people bring in cookies to work and people share other things, like, why not share a little bit of salad dressing? That seems good to me as well. See, I, I would be sneaky about that. I mean, I would take someone else's salad dressing, don't get me wrong, meaning I would use it. I, I wouldn't steal the whole bottle, yeah. but I, I, I would feel a little, I, I would feel a little furtive about it. Let me put it that way. A little furtive. Um, bag of Hershey's Kisses sitting on the break room table. How many are you allowed to take? Oh, on the break room table, that kind of changes things because, you know, if it's on the break room table, it's kind of fair game. Oh, but I agree. I agree. You've got to save enough for everybody in the office. So the amount that you can take depends on how many other employees are going to be taking them. Um, so it was definitely left there for the purpose of everyone sharing. Yeah. So, so, maybe, so, taking, maybe. so taking your quote share sounds totally reasonable to me taking uh, more than that would make it so that others wouldn't be able to take as many as you, uh, you're starting to get into the gray area there for sure. I would say three maximum, quite honestly, three maximum. That sounds pretty safe to me. It seems yeah. like once you've gone past three, you're kind of venturing into the, the hoarding of, of Kiss's stage. Now, this one guy, uh, somebody had left pizza in there in the break room. We got an email. I go down there. He is taking the last three slices of pizza to bring home with him. I thought that was very out of line. Yeah, even taking the last slice is kind of a bold move. You know, I think that even if you're coming in, like, if there's only one slice left, you better look around and make sure that everybody else has had a slice or that you haven't had a slice at that point. I think that's uh, that's one of those difficult uh, decisions right there when you walk in and there's only one slice left. Well, I've, everybody, I mean, somebody has to take the last slice. The last three, that that was, you know, yeah. <laughs> a little above and beyond. Well, hey, uh, thanks a lot for doing this podcast. It, it, was, it was great. Great conversation. I loved it. Cool. That sounds good. It was good talking to you. Yeah, good talking to you. Thanks a lot. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of The Working Experience. We'd like to thank our sponsors, One Circle Media and the Still Believe app, the only app that delivers video proof of the Tooth Fairy and Santa by simply taking a picture. Download the app at stillbelieve.co today and amaze your kids. And if you work for a studio, network, startup, or corporation and are looking for a partner to create media that will build, engage, and entertain your audience, reach out to me at john at onecirclemedia.com. I would love to hear from you. And that's it. The end. The sweet end. Until our next audio encounter.